Yeah, your 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 setup looks so fancy. You got a you got a fancy setup there. We do. We have a properly fancy setup. We nice. uh, took took over an old room designed in the '90s at the height of '90s aesthetics. <laughs> that sounds we, like student bill. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Eighteen okay. nineties, yeah. maybe, but yeah, yeah. okay. So at least, yeah. at least you're close. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, uh, we, and then we built a workshop, like literally on the other side of this wall. It's our big workshop, and so we had to make sure there was no sound was coming in. So we built a, a kind of not quite a floating room, but we pretty much built a, built a floating room within this room, and. Um, <laughs> Yeah, we thought if we're going to do it, let's do it. So we got a lot of handy guys on staff. So. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Man, where can I get cheap source of labor to build a soundproof? Oh, I know. <laughs> the very institutional. Is it is the College of St. Joseph the Worker just an excuse for you to remodel your house without having to do it? Like, yeah, that- that's exactly it. You know, it's just like, honey, you know, I know we want to do mass masonry. We can't afford it. <laughs> you know, it's either like try and get a whole bunch of like children from China or, you know, do this. <laughs> Listen, honey, I I know you want subway tile in the bathroom, but gosh, I'm so busy blogging. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know what? There's so many legal protections against somebody abusing the system now. Yeah. Like this is actually one of the things that um, you know made me think about this model in the beginning was that it is legally required that someone is paid to train in the skilled uh, trades, and so mm. that not only for us offsets the. Uh, tuition but it also ensures that uh, no one's going to take advantage of our students which is pretty cool yeah yeah so why, why don't we talk about that so yeah. the college of saint joseph the worker where did the idea come from of marrying uh what, what's the degree in catholic was it catholic studies yeah ba yeah. in catholic studies you know what it, we just kind of figured that it was the life of christ in a nutshell you know the yeah. word became flesh and he picked up a hammer and so I why shouldn't that we line. that line is perfect (laughs) uh you know what we we really do uh have just so much of our current society to thank the church for i mean our society is kind of falling off a cliff there's so many bad things that are happening i mean we could go on a great litany of remorses that we have but there are certain things that the church just changed and changed forever um that we can't really get out of our minds anymore um, in some things that's happening today is a great reversion to paganism. And one of those things yeah. is, is the hatred of manual labor. I mean, you just look at, at ancient Greece and things are so bad there against manual labor that certain Greek city-states, I'm thinking about Corinth and Thebes in particular, actually had laws on the books forbidding citizens from engaging in manual labor. Things were so much worse wow. – in wow. Athens than in Corinth, that with the law that they needed to put on the books there was forbidding citizens from ridiculing other people of their trade. <laughs> I mean, it was just so culturally uh, antagonistic to manual labor. And, and guys like Aristotle, he said that, um, that there is nothing noble about the trades, for it is inimical to the life of virtue. And when you look over at the Romans, they weren't any better. I mean, you look yeah. at, uh, you know, Gellius and Dionysius and, and, and the ancient historian Livy who records that Romans, Roman citizens weren't supposed to work in manual labor. And Cicero uh, said that there was nothing respect about, re- respectable about uh, a tradesman for there was nothing respectable about a workshop. And it was, <laughs> it's so crazy. This yeah. is like this is like um, their their what do you call it? Aristocratic nature run amok like mm. aristotle didn't believe that these people totally. could become virtuous 
because they didn't have the appropriate amount of leisure time in order to engage in things like philosophy, right? The contemplation of, of God totally. and, and, and the one. But when you look at, I, I, and it's so funny, whenever modern teachers teach virtue ethics, they always use, I have never heard a Thomistic or Aristotelian virtue ethicist not use the trades as an analog for how to grow in spiritual life. Because they all talk about like, <laughs> like, it's like a skilled worker. Like you start off as an apprentice, you learn the thing, right? You develop the skill. They all do that, right? Even uh, Aristotle talked about the way he did it was a harpist is to a skill or a, um, a good harpist what a man is to a good man or vice versa. Um, meaning like you have to de- you have to understand and subordinate yourself to the laws of the work itself mm-hmm. that's outside of you that you then need to internalize and then develop them as habits that enable you to be so free that yeah. your deliberative action in the past that hindered your freedom now it, it gives you a whole new vista of freedom. So, for instance, yeah. my wife came into me today uh, full of rage and sorrow because uh because i am not a handyman <laughs> because i have no passable capacity even though i own thousands of dollars worth of tools i don't know how to use them and she said uh the shower mold uh has increased i cleaned it the other day so we we moved into a house that obviously they got some third rate guy to do some cosmetic stuff and the tiles the bottom rung of tiles the water is getting behind whatever is there and i don't think there's a vapor barrier there so so she's like we're gonna have to do this and i was like oh man my oldest daughter's only 13 she's not old enough to go to the college of st joseph the worker she can't get these skills so yeah yeah it's it's fascinating though like why why did they in, in plato's republic he talks about you can't have a great city you can't have a city nope. without the trades mm-hmm. right i mean he goes so much in depth on socrates does on the needs of the trades and yet they were uh, brushed away. Yeah, demeaned them. You know, part of it, I think, is some sort of like visceral like hatred of work. Like they just didn't like working hard. Yeah, I think that was one one side of it. But the other is kind of doctrinal. Mm. Uh, like their theology set them up to despise mm. the trades. And I don't think this is just kind of the Greco-Roman world. I think this is all of pagan antiquity. So think about the Atrahasis, which is the great. Uh, beginnings or origin stories for the babylonians this is like the babylonian version of genesis yeah, and it, like the enuma elish and all that stuff totally gotcha. yeah exactly and and this one starts off by saying you know back when the gods not the men worked and had to shoulder the lo- load and handle the drudgery and that's how it starts <laughs> instead of like in you know in the beginning, God made the heavens and the yeah. earth, you know? It's like, that's how it starts. That's that's the beginning. And this was like the international bestseller of the ancient world, right? <laughs> yeah. And, and so that for them, it's like, well, this is actually a doctrinal matter. It's mm. like their gods are not transcendent. They're not all powerful. They engage in work and, and they hated it. And so what did they do? Well, their solution, according to the Atrahasis, was that they made man mm. to alleviate them from that work. And you look over in, in the Greco-Roman world and you find the, the same thing, whereas, um, you know, uh, you have uh, the, all, the, all the gods in the pantheon were actually working themselves. Like every, every, every god had their own trade. Um, they weren't transcendent. They, they were dependent upon others. Yeah. And there was some sort of barter that happened between men and the gods. And your job, as much as you could, or your task ahead of you, is to alleviate the burden of labor for yourself and put that on somebody else's shoulders. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Introducing is- the slave economy where one for every one Roman in Rome, you add four to five 
slaves. Exactly. Like and, and craziness. The, this yeah. is their justification for the slave economies that they cultivated. Yeah. So the – and there was no – when they, you talk about virtue ethics there, the major way in which Christianity reformed the vision of the virtues – from this Aristotelian pagan background was that the virtues didn't just give you self-control. They gave you the ability for a greater magnitude of greater potential for self-giving. So mm. they made you more relational. They put you in relation with one another so that you could actually enjoy life in union with God and with neighbor in the glory of Jesus Christ himself. That's what the virtues actually do. The pagans missed that that yeah. service is at the heart of that and yeah. so when you look at the greco-roman world and you're seeing that they hated labor and that they had slaves it was in the heart of this greco-roman world that the word became flesh and spent most of the years of his life at a carpenter's bench revealing in his very person the new life that we are to lead a new understanding of virtues is manifest in his very life and yeah. then we spent thousands of years working that out theoretically. Yeah. Well, I mean, so uh, right now I'm doing this apologetic series for, um, for prisons. It's some, it's a project that I've been working on for three years, but we got the filming done and all this stuff. And so I'm writing the book and it's hard to write cool. a book. Yeah. It's hard to write a book. It's a book lit. That's what I tell myself to get rid of the anxiety, <laughs> but it's to, it's to, you know, it has to be written around an eighth grade, sixth to eighth grade reading level. Cause these are for inmates and there's super huge anti-Catholicism that's there. Mm. A lot of the converts in prison are fear. Or number one, they're fundamentalists, like crazy fundamentalists. Um, and then they are extremely anti-Catholic. So, which kind of goes together, but, uh, so, so you have to like understand, but when you publish materials that are used in prison in order to gain approval, you can't attack other people's religious views. Mm. Um, and so you have to write it in a very ecumenical apologetics is kind of like a funny way of I'm defending why I'm right and you're wrong, but in a way that brings us all together onto my side of the field. Yeah. So, uh, but the, so I've been doing all this study in Judaism right now. I got, I'm, I'm building my Jewish section of the, that's what these books are right there. That's awesome. Yeah. I love it. I love it. And, uh, like every man's the, Talmud, that sort of thing that we got on yeah. the shelf. Yeah. I, I got bro Talmud. It's called the Brownmid. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> well, I it was actually a legit book. Yeah, I that's know, hilarious, I know. man. Yeah. <laughs> no, these these books are written by Dr. Feingold, this triple series. Yeah. Who's yeah. um out in St. Louis um totally. at the at the seminary there. He's incredible. Mm -hmm. he is. Um Joe, uh, oh gosh, there, there's a bunch of great books. And I just discovered an Anglican, a Jewish, an ultra-Orthodox Jew who converted to Anglicanism at the end of the 1800s. And uh he published a bunch of like super in-depth. This is what all the rabbis and scholars and historians tell you this is what daily life was like for the social life of jews for the rabbinical life of jews mm -hmm. for the temple life and all this stuff but the thing that's interesting about it is you contrast roman athens with jerusalem mm -hmm. and one of the things that stands out is this notion of the dignity of work that doesn't exist in a lot of the pagan cultures because yeah. of genesis 1 and because of genesis 2 totally. um so you have like someone like rabbi moses maimonides who was mm -hmm. uh, a little bit before thomas aquinas and um he was talking about like the rabbi version of work. So you're talking about the theology. Yeah. The gods invented men to do the drudgery that they didn't want to do. And then men had slaves to do the drudgery. And so to be like God is to enter into this leisurely work, right, philosophy right, right. and poetry and all that. But for the Jewish rabbi, every Jewish rabbi was required to have a trade. Yeah. Like Hillel was a Mason, like the big, yeah. the big 
named guy there. And, yeah, the big and name. Shamar Hillel Shammai. was a carpenter or something like that. Yeah, a lot of them yeah. were. A lot of yeah. them maintained. And St. Paul yeah. was a tent maker. Right. And so you have this notion of like uh, the Pharisees, many of them were had different things alongside their scholarship. And so the dignity of work was never demeaned. Obviously, they had slaves too, and all this stuff. Although their slavery was a lot different than way different than yeah. Roman slave people, <laughs> like arguing with new atheists on the internet, which I encourage no one to do. Uh, but <laughs> Why that, do you that's do that to like, yourself, man. Yeah, I, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm feeling depressed. Yeah. I know. Uh, I know how I'll punish myself. No, but, that just shows you're really dedicated to the cause. That's awesome. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, but anyway, it's, it's it's interesting to see how you know to them all slavery is slavery, and to a certain extent, obviously, like it's an awful. Um, awful thing but the the understanding like if you hurt physically hurt your slave like you had to let them go free and you mm-hmm. had to give them resources in order to sustain their life like <laughs> every time a jew let a, a, a israelite let a slave go free they had to give them money and tools yeah. so that they could sustain their life with work right like the, it's a totally different it is a totally different system it and is so, i would yeah. say that one maybe one thing that the jews were uh, the ancient jews were missing was an understanding of work as an innate good. Mm. So they have a command from Genesis um, saying, you know, till and keep the garden, yeah. right? And so there's a command and there must be something good. But most of the reflections from the rabbis that I've read on work has really been around um, what else are you going to do? Like you, you have to cultivate the land. You can't do it. They weren't kidding themselves as the Greeks sometimes were. Usually they were just explicit about like having slaves. Yeah. You know, it's like if you have a different understanding of your relation to those who are weaker than you then you just got to do the work yourself yeah um but but an understanding of the intrinsic goodness of the world and how how does that work when we transform it in our work like if the world is actually intrinsically good then when we work we 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 change that right like like a tree is good but to have a table means that you're destroying that tree you know, that was something that only Christians later worked out. And you need the extra oomph of revelation, I'd yeah. say, to, to get there. But but absolutely, the Old Testament setting us up on the right track all the way through, obviously. Yeah. That's what God does. That's what he did. That's that's how he yeah. starts to unveil his love for us. Yeah, and you have St. Paul. I mean, obviously, we have St. Mm-hmm. Joseph as the prime model, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, he was a laborer. Um, he was working poor. That's why they offered the two turtle doves. Um, as a sacrifice at the presentation of Christ, right? Mm-hmm. And they, because they couldn't afford the lamb. And there's yeah. an exception clause that you could offer two doves. Um, and, you know, the, 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 the word in the Greek could mean carpenter, could mean architect, right? And the crazy thing is, I was listening yeah, to this tectone one. Tectone is that yeah, word. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Te- I was like, I know it's tech something. <laughs> yeah, tectone, yeah. which is where we get the word architect. Um, but they, they, this interesting thing that Herod the Great, He's he's known as the great because of his architectural works, right? Yeah, the, yeah, yeah. the different things that he did, the most famous obviously being the, around the temple. But um, he had this history of conscripting Galilean uh, workers, Galilean Jewish workers for his projects. So when he would build, there, there are serious chances that St. Joseph and Jesus were conscripted laborers in the well, at least St. Joseph under Herod the Great, but even under his sons who continued some of these projects, that they were conscripted laborers, right? Like forced by the Romans to build some Roman, you know, the docks, um, the, the famous docks that they have out in one of the port cities and different stuff. Like it's wild to think of this stuff that that um, you know, how this intersection of of work and and the divine entering into the mundane, right? Yeah. I don't know. I love it. I love it. 
Yeah, that's that certainly changes what when you think about Jesus saying, you know, destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. You know, it's like, wait, your dad took him a long time to build it, though, man. You know, yeah. <laughs> yeah what's that joke that Jim Gaffigan says? Uh, he's like, yeah, I hope that Messiah thing works out because he was terrible at building my shed. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah I've heard those jokes. I've heard like some people say that you know, say Joseph was poor because he was a bad tradesman. I just, I just think that's hogwash, man. There's no one like that guy, man. Yeah. Right. Right. Absolutely. Model for us all. Um, so, okay. So going from this understanding of the theology of work, why Mm -hmm. Catholic studies, why do you not just cap it off at, you know, engineering or, or some sort of, you know, STEM field that might be, I don't know, more helpful to the trades, quote unquote. Yeah. I'll give you a theoretical, quick theoretical answer. And then I'll give you another, uh, long theoretical answer. <laughs> that's how we that, roll. Cause that's how everybody wants it to be. Uh, <laughs> nothing practical <No>. here. <laughs> <laughs> that's what the trades are for. You know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, you, you know, the long and short of it is that, uh, when Jesus came to sanctify the world, he did so primarily in his very person, secondarily on the cross, and then thirdly through his works. And when you look at um, the works that he started with, it was in carpentry. Like he came and sanctified the world as a carpenter. And so to understand what you were actually doing in building, in constructing, uh, gives you a better running start in the ways, the purposes, and the focus of how you are sanctifying the world. So I think mm-hmm. that's a quick answer. A longer one is that you have to ask a reason, like, why Why do we even keep university education in the first place? And, and my, my short kind of nice soundbite answer to that is that the same church, Catholic church, that taught the world to love labor – was also the same institution that founded the first universities and colleges. You know, there's something that seems almost paradoxical in the love of labor and the love of learning found in the very same heart of the church. Um, But then you ask the question, like, why? Why did they found the first universities? And you get a really clear answer from that historically, and it's this. The, The Catholic Church founded universities to teach priests how to preach the gospel better. That was the point. It wasn't just that they were sitting around scratching intellectual itches. It was something that was to be uh, discovered in deep, wonderful contemplation that, as St. Bonaventure said, would return to action. Mm. Now we have the question facing us now. It's like, well, what is the point of starting another university, another college, if we're not sending out priests? And I think we get another wonderful answer from our mother of the church. It's nice being Catholic. You're given a lot of answers. And <laughs> one of them is that... Thank like, God I don't have to think for myself. Am I right? Up top. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Faith-seeking understanding, bro. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> and the, the answer... <laughs> you know, that we get of like what we lay people are supposed to do is to sanctify the temporal order. That's how Vatican II phrases it, right? And what does that mean? Well, the temporal order is really all the stuff that the friars take vows to give up, right? You know, they take vows of poverty. We engage in profitable economic activity. They take vows of chastity while we get married and have families. And they take vows of obedience while we rule the political order in a way that they don't. And so these three fields, they, of course, correspond to the three uh, evangelical councils of of chastity, poverty, and obedience, which otherwise could be 
transform to money, sex, and power, right? Yeah. You know, those are the things that they're giving up that we must sanctify. Yeah. We have to sanctify family life. We have to sanctify economic life, and we have to sanctify political life. Mm -hmm. And so that's why we chose Catholic studies in particular, so that we would have these three pillars of work, family, and politics as the basis of our education, so that our students can actually go forth and know what they're doing as they're supposed to be sanctifying the temporal order, not knowing what the church has revealed to us, because you can't just intuit this stuff. You actually have to be taught it. To, to, to take the time in, in docile contemplation, receiving the church's teachings before you can go off and do it. It's like, otherwise you're kind of like getting in a car and driving without knowing the directions. It's like, maybe you'll go on the right path. Probably not, you know? Yeah. And there's definitely a lot of, a lot of wrong terms that you could be making along the yeah. time. So you're there's going There's an old Yiddish proverb that says, if you don't know where you're going, any road will take you there. And I learned <laughs> that from the television show Northern Exposure. <laughs> <laughs> Northern exposure is beautiful. <laughs> that is awesome. Right. I mean, but, but you know, there's so much, um, everything is being instrumentalized, mm -hmm. right? Everything is being instrumentalized. Uh, there's a line that Dr. Han said in one of our classes when I was at Franciscan years and years ago, and he said, um, the, the problem of the modern age is that we absolutize the relative and we mm -hmm. relativize the absolute. Mm -hmm. So we put God on the margins. We hang a big question mark around that. We say it's private. It's your truth, your choice, you know, whatever. But then things that are truly relative, right, we make the end all and be all. And one of those things is like the proper place for labor in human life. And I don't just mean the trades. I mean mm -hmm. all of our work that we do. Totally. For so many people, either we absolutize it and turn to it like a god yeah. and and try to define ourselves by either our labor or the fruits of the labor, meaning probably money, sex, and power, yeah. um, and the, it, it becomes idolatry. And it's interesting that Cain uh, named – he built the first city and he gave – and which was an industrious city, right? Um, and then he named his son after the city, which is uh, Enosh or Enoch. Enoch, yeah. Enoch, yeah. Mm -hmm. And Enoch means consecration. And the way it was always described was he's consecrating the work, not to God, but to himself, mm -hmm. right? The labors of his hands. And so you have, and even his children are, you know, his products. Yes. But then there's this other tendency of you don't worship it as your God, but you don't have an end, right? You don't have, so this is just the next thing that I do in life as a, as T.S. Eliot said, right? A distraction from distraction by distraction. And it's mm -hmm. like, it's just the next thing. I get married and then I have kids. Why? Well, because that's just what you do. And you get a job and you do this. And the only job I could get is this or that. But with the Catholic studies, liberal arts framework is like, no, let me show you what it means to be human. And let me show you how these very human things are not just things you got to do, but they're actually sanctified because our Lord himself did it. And it can direct you to your ultimate end. Yeah. It participates in it without yeah. being confused with it. Right. And, and I think that's just so powerful. Yeah. Praise God. You know, the one thing that a lot of people say is that you got to pick a major in college that's going to get you a good job. And right. obviously there's some sort of like truth to it. You got to be able to provide for yourself. But when you're talking about the humanities, the point of the humanities is just what you said. It's to, to know the truths that make life most human. Yeah. To, to give you, a, you know, kind of a, another few rungs on the ladder as you ascend to God, you know, that's not a money-making endeavor. That's not the point of it. And then people say, well, it helps you to think well. It's like, well, yeah, of course it does. But that's not like high finance strategy or like learning code, which is yeah. like really what it does. And, and, and of course, making money is 
important. Like you got to survive. You're going to have, I mean, this is a big reason why people are not getting married as young and having families as young is because they are financially stressed out of their minds. Yeah. And so you got to do this. Like this is part of the way in which you free yourself and able to live a virtuous life. But we also have to free the humanities from the necessity of making a buck. It's like you should just be able to enjoy those truths, have them transform your lives without feeling like you need to instrumentalize them. And so that's what we're really hoping to do, because just as you're saying, like people today think so much in terms of jobs, not in terms of work. Now, in having a good work, that means that you are thinking about something that you're you're constructing just so as to transform your soul, but also to transform society to ensure that you are cultivating the common good and giving gifts to others. Like that is what work is for. You yeah. know, it is to, for expanding the goodness of the world. But when you, most of us think about jobs, we, we think about we, we might even like our jobs, you know, but they're ways of, you know, kind of making a buck. Well, probably if you like your job, then it's like I, I'm, I'm making money and, and I'm kind of enjoying like putting the puzzle pieces together from nine to five, yeah. you know, but it's not like a work that, you know, like in your heart and being pulled out of yourself to sanctify the world. You know, we, we got to start to think more in terms of work. And a lot of that is a mindset thing. Mm-hmm. Some jobs are just harder to do that with than others, but, but we got to start thinking in terms of work again. And how many the, times yeah. have you read Rerum Navarum? Like 400, <laughs> 500 times. Like, I feel like yeah. you're just spitting it out, man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I spent a lot of time. I mean, this is just the best, man. They just yeah. transformed my life. I mean, this is something when I was newly received to the church, I was just so happy to be a Catholic. I go to mass every day. I could pray my rosary every day, but I wanted to look more like a Catholic than just, you know, an hour or two a day. Right. And this is when a buddy of mine like takes out Ram Navarum and Lorem Exercens. And I can't remember what the third one was, probably uh, Caritas and Veritate. And he hands them to me. He's like, bro, what you need is Catholic social doctrine, man. And <laughs> got up and changed my degree path and everything it was awesome. Praise oh, wow. God. Yeah. 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 I remember I was taking, uh, I was nervous about not having money as a Franciscan philosophy theology. You want to talk about taking majors that don't pay money. <laughs> philosophy and theology are, are at the top of that list. Totally I remember only a Franciscan does the cost-benefit analysis of me saying, I think I'm going to leave philosophy and become a theology major because I think that's more <laughs> practical. There's <laughs> like, not like a bunch of philosophy departments looking to hire undergrad philosophy youth ministers, right? right so, uh, dude. <laughs> but uh, so anyway, so it was, it was funny, but the, the – um, I w- so I started taking <laughs> economics, and I was thinking about becoming a triple major in philosophy, theology, and economics. Cool. Scott Hahn did that, and I was imitating him. I was a little hero worship. That's embarrassing <laughs> that I admitted that out loud. But uh, the uh, don't worry, nobody heard. <laughs> oh, thank me. God! Yeah. Thank God! I mean, so this is the tail end of catching foxes, so only eight people are listening. But uh, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. But so the um, the trajectory of that, I, I I realized like I was pretty behind in some of the economics class. I had taken a couple, and I loved them. So I had to go to the professor, and I said, "Hey, I'm thinking about doing this, but um, I have some friends in that are going into this class." It's a 300-level class. It was modern labor economics. And I was oh, like, yeah. I need to get your permission to join this class because I really am thinking about taking this as a major. But I want to challenge myself, and, and this, I think, would be a good class to do. And he's like, perfect. And he signed me up. And so I took the class, and I also had Catholic social teaching in the theology at the same time. Oh, cool. And so in, we would read, um, you know, uh, Centesimus Annus and, and uh, Quadragesimal Anno and you know, all the different social That's justice cyclicals. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We were reading all of them. And and then we would cover them in class and we could write, uh, you know, we had to do papers on them and all these different things. But it's interesting because 
the the thing that was that notion of exploitation that yeah. notion of everyone so the jewish notion that everyone is made in the image and likeness of god but still because of the the world culture at the time and whatever slavery and other things and and looking at labor as if it is nothing but maybe the the curse right toilsome labor yeah. uh, the curse of the fall or the punishment from the fall yeah. um in christianity because christ was a carpenter right because he was the son of uh, raises the son of a carpenter do you have this dignification of work that runs throughout all of catholicism yeah and the cool thing about that is it not only does it elevate labor but it keeps them human so that hopefully it's non-exploitative mm-hmm. now obviously there have been tons of times especially in the beginning of the industrial revolution when every human being was just a cog in a machine it seemed like for so many of our yeah, industrialists it was, a, it was a explicit um it was it was the explicit strategy of uh, the industrialists to break the wills of people. So like one guy, or is, is, is his name, um, you know, 18th century guy owning a lot of factories, building this up 19th century guy, excuse me. And he, um, he will actually talk about needing to hire children and women because they are not so willful in their work. Like they don't want to impress themselves in their work. They just need people to follow orders as much as possible. Yeah. And then when you get into, early 20th century and the rise of what's called Taylorism. There's a guy named Frederick Winslow Taylor, who was just such an interesting figure. You know, he was a professional uh, golfer and a professional tennis player. And then he writes this book called process engineering about how you need, when you, the best way to increase efficiency is to look at a task and to break that task all the way down into its various parts. So if you're going to make a, a chair, it's like, what do you need to do? It's like cutting the wood down, milling it, um, making the, the legs, the seat, the back, you know, taking all those parts and giving those tasks to individual people. So, of course, this gets on, uh, you know, puts, is put on display best on Ford's assembly mm, machine. Yeah. But it was an idea that captured the businessman's mind. So when Harvard created the first MBA program, you're just mentioning Luke doing the MBA program. When Harvard's created the first MBA program, I think it was 1908. The entire first year of that was dedicated to studying Taylor's thesis. Wow. Who else took it under his wing was Joseph Stalin, actually. I mean, it's crazy. <laughs> and that's, of course, why you have this great competition between the U.S. and the USSR, because they're, they're using, utilizing the same economic strategies for hyperproduction. And, but what does that do? It means that there is less creative input that a worker can have over his products. I mean, just setting aside dollars and costs and everything for a moment, like this is a, this along with the industrial revolution were the two major transformations in work where you don't have in the best sense, willful work, like work where you're putting, like really stamping your own soul onto the products that are going out, where you're cultivating virtue more and more and more through a creative process of construction Mm. that you can then take the fruits of that, which is the acquisition of the moral virtue, St. Thomas Aquinas tells us, to contemplation. Yeah. So, so there, anyways, there's a lot of great battles going on here. I think for, for me and part of the joy in helping create the College of St. Joseph the Worker is precisely that the trades are such a rich path for acquiring the virtues, um, that there is creative work. You cannot automate this stuff. I mean, it's the yeah. last thing that AI is going to take over is, is this. And, 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 you know, the work can get increasingly complex uh, the more that you get into it. It starts yeah. complicated, it gets more complicated as it goes on. And then that's a joy to be able to offer that path to people. Yeah. There's a great, um, a great line from Matthew Crawford, who is a you know, American philosopher. I love 
Shop Dude. class of Soulcraft and uh, the world beyond your head. And uh, Dude, he's coming out to the new Polity Conference in May. I'm so stoked. Oh, that's awesome. awesome. When is that? Yeah. When is that? May 23rd, 24th, 25th. It's going to be Ooh, a, a I'll time. make that my birthday present. <laughs> nice. I love it. May 25th is my birthday. Now that you know that, uh, I do expect a present. But he has this line where he says, the more complicated the jig, the less skilled the worker. Yeah. And uh, and you think about this, like how so companies will spend billions so that they can remove laborers, right? And you know whatever. But he said a man, an educated man with a um, a tool bag, can build you a house. Mm. So it's like a handful of tools. He can build you a house for the most part. Yeah. Right. And uh, you, you, I used to think about like my when my grandfather was a kid, Sears used to sell homes. Yeah. <laughs> And they would arrive in these pallets with every screw, everything, and it just had instructions, and you would build your own home. Isn't that something else? That is so crazy. So crazy to me. Because if that were me, well, number one, we'd have mold more than just in the bathroom. Uh, (laughs) Good Lord. But, I mean, it's so fascinating to me. And so the the understanding of the skilled labor, Crawford talks about how the the auto repair mechanic has to have, like, more – uh, more almost like more dignity than the architect and designer and an engineer who first made the car or the motorcycle. He's a yeah. motorcycle repairman because th- you have to sit and figure out the thing as it is, not in your you know take your platonic notion of a motorcycle and implant it into this thing like some demiurge. But you're the one. You're the. I'm keeping it very philosophical today. I love it. Thank yeah, you. but you Although you I have to sit understand. there and look. <laughs> but like, look at what all like this is the lived experience of this car. And you have to figure out how the drivers used it and abused it and all of these things. And you got to listen to like, oh, well, that it's a higher pitch hum than this. And like, and mm-hmm. to figure out these things, like we disrespect that so much in our society. I had a dad in one of my men's groups. He said, uh, my wife gave my son $10 an hour to pick up the leaves in our backyard. And then she had like five chores and she paid him $10 an hour. And he said, and then the next day I called my son into my office and I had him do paperwork for me and I paid him $15 an hour. Oh man. (laughs) And when my wife said, why are you paying him more than me? And he thought, she thought it was like a competition of love between it. He said, I want to teach my son the value of working in an office rather than working with your hands. Oh man. Uh And I said, I'm sitting there and I'm like, dude, dude, do you know most American millionaires are people who work with their hands. They're the plumber who owns that big, ugly van down the street with all the ladders sticking out of it. Like the average American millionaire is self-made because of the trades, not because they're a lawyer or they're an oil exec or something like that. Like they found that most Americans who live, who make, Oh gosh, what was that line? It's from the book of millionaire next door. Um, who make a six figure salary. I think it's over 150,000. Eight out of 10 Americans in that age bracket live month to month. And if you live beneath that, it's seven out of 10 Americans. So you would be better off in America than it would look like. Yeah. (laughs) And then the average American millionaire is a first-time millionaire Mm. and does it by his job, uh, usually physical labor, right? So you got the boss that owns the plumbing company and all that stuff. Yeah. You know, I think everybody kind of has heard that the average college graduate out-earns the person without a degree. But that's an almost meaningless data point because it compares everybody from engineers to pizza delivery guys. But if you look at – but the person that's like seriously considering going to college is really considering between uh, a, a career path and college. 
you know, if they don't yeah. go. And and that's something more like the trades. And there you find that the average or the median electrician and the median plumber is always going to out earn the median college graduate and that the median tradesman generally is going to out earn or have a higher net worth than uh, the median college graduate until their mid 50s. And that's like not having to incur all the debt and whatever, whatever else. It's just <clears throat> I mean, it's, it's just absolutely crazy. But if you could even combine both, man, that's a pretty rich time. So, so, so what are graduate or uh, not graduates? So, students at the College of Saint Joseph the Worker. What are they going to be expected to do? They are going to be expected to work hard. <laughs> I mean, it is it is so much fun actually. Just thinking about this because so if, if you don't know how a trade school works, let me just break it down. It's a two year program. It's really quick. You're choosing one path in it. So, say you're becoming an electrician, you're just studying electricity. Um, for those two years, and then you're becoming an apprentice uh, at the same time or immediately afterwards. For us, we're taking a little bit of slower, broader, and more rigorous path in that first year. All of, We're giving our students what we call this education in the anatomy of a building or the logic of a house, starting from uh, site review all the way up to the finishing touches. You know, you, they are really going to understand how each part of the trades fits into the whole complex of a building. And that's a pretty rigorous year. Now at the same, and it is also a perfect foundation for then going further into a specific trade, which is exactly what they're going to be doing uh, in the years ahead. Now, kind of in parallel to that, in that first year, they're going to be taking really two classes. One is in sacred scripture and the other is in sacred tradition, which, so you know just as well as I, that is the foundation of all theology. Like you can't, can't do it. You can't cheat it if you don't know your mm -hmm. sacred scripture and you can't cheat it. You can't do it if you don't know the tradition of our church. And so it's two classes all year. It's super rigorous. It's going to be so much fun. I'm just looking forward to teaching that a lot. <laughs> Um, and then we're going to um, move into those two directions, one on, one on the side of the trades where you choose a path in HVAC, electricity, um, carpentry, or plumbing on the one hand. And then you slowly start to move into those three great pillars of lay theology, work, family, politics. Hmm. So that's that's kind of the order in the, of, of their life. Um, what they'll be working on is first of all, like what they're going to get paid to train on on the job site is is really starting off with college projects. So they're actually going to be building their own school, which is actually going to be a, be a blast, <laughs> as well as um, some various projects that we've lined up uh, here in, in downtown Steubenville, um, which, man, does it need it downtown oh, Steubenville, bro. Steubenville is so funny because you drive – number one, everyone just thinks of Franciscan University. When you think of Steubenville, right. uh, if you're if you're not from there, like the conferences are like yeah. <laughs> did such a good job of promotion that it is just <laughs> yeah. the town now, you know. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and and then you get there and you you come off the the fancy bridge, right? And you're coming around. And you're like, <laughs> and you kind of look left. Don't look left. That that's where <laughs> it's sad when you look left. And then you start coming up and you're like, oh, there's a new hotel. Oh, yeah. there's the campus, manicured. It's beautiful. <laughs> it's a city set on a hill that cannot be hid. It's wonderful. But then. I, like I can remember, you know, twenty years ago, going to Doctor Han's house for a Bible study, mm. or I had a girlfriend that lived in that neighborhood, and you're yeah, like, yeah. drug dealer bomb, bombed out, uh, you know, like <laughs> <laughs> cops busting it in as we're walking by, and then it's like student housing, uh, you know, and then you go to the <laughs> drug dealer, someone who's lived there for four hundred years, you know, yeah, like yeah, it's yeah. like it's so funny. You have this crazy blend, and 
there's a lot of like just driving down the main drag, right? Driving down University Boulevard or, mm-hmm. or whatever, uh, Sunset. You see um, all these homes, and then downtown. It's just such a state of disrepair. And obviously, people like you know, obviously you guys uh, at New Polity and Matt Frad and Pints of the Quine. It's like slowly things are happening. There's always been people in the community that are trying to do different things and build it up, even out, apart from the university, but. It needs a lot of work. It needs some, uh, yeah, a lot of work. So are y'all doing anything with with that? What are you guys doing in particular? Yeah, you know, so there is a, an incredible amount to renovate. There are these beautiful buildings with these glorious facades and what has actually been deemed a historical downtown um, that <laughs> we are uh, The finest downtown Al Capone's money could buy. Yeah. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. Dude, there's a lot of truth to that. Um, <laughs> Lady took me to the airport and she said, I go, oh, you have an Italian last name. She, I go, are you a townie? And she goes, ask your question. Yeah. And I was like, what question do people usually ask? She goes, is the sandwich shop a front? And yes, it is. And I was like, I knew it. I knew it. <laughs> so funny. Yes, yes. So <laughs> heyday in the 20s, 30s, and 40s, and then not so much. Yeah, and so we were just so excited to to see revitalization actually happening, and it is. It happened with street festivals, you know, on, mm-hmm. on 4th Street, where people are given a vision, like really, like right before us, like, wow. This is what downtown could be, like once was and could be again. Yeah. That's wonderful. And so we're we're getting these jobs lined up of renovating old churches, old buildings, old houses, uh, giving people a place to stay because this is a big thing. A lot of people are moving here again, and they don't really have a great place to settle. A pretty poor <laughs> list what? of options yeah. of houses. I mean, and we all have to kind of roll up our sleeves and start renovating the, the yeah. homes that we buy and put our families in. And so it, this is it, pretty It fun. is funny, like... I remember this a dad coming for like a parents weekend and he's like, I can buy a three story house with a basement for $30,000. Yeah. <laughs> now, granted, it's a fixer upper. Yeah. yeah. But, you can put a hundred thousand dollars into it. But, yeah. <laughs> un- unless you can do the labor yourself. I had totally. a buddy that did that. He put mm-hmm. in, he just, they lived in it for two years and he slowly f- repaired everything from staircases, back porches, like all of the stuff. And he ended up making like a hundred grand profit off of all of it because he did it slowly it was his primary residence he took his time but um yeah it, it's yeah, that's wild. What we all have to, i mean we did that yeah. we bought a foreclosed boarded up house and that hadn't been lived in in years and Ugh. uh yeah it was so unbelievably gross and my <laughs> wife cried and we fixed it up and now we live there very happily you know <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, are, are you are you gonna have an opportunity for like residents to have their homes fixed that maybe couldn't afford it what does that look like, like yeah that's a great question so uh, we would love at one point to be able to fund that ourselves and there's mm. some ideas in the model of, of how we might be able to do that but we're primarily i mean as i mentioned like we really are putting our students first we're ensuring that they get paid actually above the legal limit is is our is our goal um the the well above that which is of course above minimum wage there's there's a trade minimum wage as well and we want to even beat that um because our our goal is to ensure that our students are able to pay ahead each month their tuition and living costs like Mm -hmm. that that's what we want to see and so what we would love to just say hey let's take our army of young competent kids over and just like a you know like the tornadoes in the cartoons like go over and like everything's changed everything's different now you know we really want to ensure that they are um, financially stable and avoiding the crippling debt that uh, delays so much of life and just keeps on the you know the adolescence that everybody's suffering from today so it's really paid jobs that we're we're 
getting. Yeah, uh, so you can't do up. that. If the people can't even afford their own repairs, mm-hmm. you know, they're obviously not going to be able to pay you mm-hmm. or pay your students mm-hmm. um, to repair. But I, I just think that, like, that's such a a, a, a model. Of, so there, there's a, an initiative called the Peace Initiative that Saddleback Community Church does. Rick Warren's Saddleback yeah, yeah, yeah. out in California. One of the things they did, you ever heard of the, um, what is it called? The Broken Window um, yes. Paradox or whatever, yeah, right? So totally. one window in the neighborhood is broken, never gets repaired. Pretty soon, it's like within two years, a, a bunch of windows are broken. And it just creates this negative effect. Like when you live in a, an, a, an ugly place, you don't care about it anymore. And so what they began doing was their church funded the, uh, and it's a super wealthy church, funded mm-hmm. going to Compton, going to South Central LA. Awesome. And they just picked a neighborhood, picked a street, contacted all the residents and said, we're going to come and cover all the costs of labor, repair, everything. So cool. Now, yeah, for, for it, it was a very finite thing, right? But that's what they began doing. So they put in planters on the neighborhood. You know, they do all the things for the curb appeal. And wouldn't you know it, right, that's like the, mo- the most sought after place for people to live. And it's, and it's for the residents. It's gentrification while the people are there, not to mm. get rid of them and then, you know, take their property for cheap and then upscale it. Now you got 10 Trader Joe's and a and a Starbucks or the other way around. Um, but, you know, like that's what gentrification does, right? Like in one sense, it, it displaces the poor so you can own property for cheap and then you develop it. You dump mm-hmm. all your money in developing it and then it becomes a place. This is Brooklyn. This is Portland. This is Seattle. Yeah. It's all these liberal enclaves where all the, you know, the claim people that love minorities and love the poor have kicked them all out so they could have their hipster jobs and $8 Dude, totally. coffee, you know? And so I look at Steubenville and I'm like, you know, the, the, the greatness of Steubenville is like the greatness of the Rust Belt cities, mm. right? Like there's something, there was something wonderfully decent about being able to work a job and provide for your family. Yeah. And that's yeah. been taken from so many people. And I don't want to just blame, you know, globalization and all that stuff, but like, yeah, we go it's where, a big part bi- of it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you, you go where labor is cheapest. That's what mm-hmm. businesses do. I know plenty of people that outsource to China and, and different. You know, like you do that because, you know, we live in a culture that only values always low prices always. Right. And to which, of course, was new. I mean, like right? not not. In, but in terms of history, we weren't always choosing that. Right? right. I mean, this is a this is a big thing. It's like what is the at the end of the day? Do you do we all kind of really want we want to be able to you know worship God, love our families and have great friends, you know, and sometimes that means actually paying them to stay like choosing to employ our, our buddy or shop at his shop rather than Kroger's because it's a higher price or it's a, you know, because it's a lower price at Kroger's, you know, but we really did make a conscientious decision. And there's yeah. some great scholars. Gordon Wood is, is one of them uh, at Brown university who's said like this, like love of commerce choosing buy low, sell high is, is kind of a, a characteristic tra- trait of America. You know, it's like that desire of our hearts slowly transforms the social order that we live in, yeah. you know? So I think that, you know, we could do a lot of different things to kind of change the social order, but if we don't convert, you know, yeah. it's not, it's not really going to have an effect. A lot yeah, of I, and, and this is, I think one of the offsets of, so America is an exceptional nation because we're not an aristocratic nation. You know, no the way. South has, we have some of that stuff in the South where you have, you know, a, the little landed gentry kind of <laughs> aristocracy, but you know, I mean, I, I mean, you know, obviously 200 years ago, but that, that notion of, Every individual, every man for himself, kind of the uh, the democracy in America by Alexei de Tocqueville. Mm-hmm. This understanding of like of it was a country born in a post mercantilist age. Mm-hmm. Like we understood, most people understood 
that land gets you capital and capital land is a form of capital, but it gets you money mm-hmm. and cash is king. Mm-hmm. In America, more than the European countries, we adopted that gung ho because we didn't have we have the westward expansion and we had um, this constant understanding that um, there is no landed gentry that owns land for a, a thousand years. You know, this it's been in this family for generations and blah blah blah. Yeah. So it would people had no problem buying and selling. So then, if cash is king, then getting more cash will always be better. And um, and so that that's kind of the framework within which the Calvinist Puritan, you know, P- Protestant work ethic operated. Mm-hmm. Um, now, obviously, it was agrarian in the beginning, principally, and then you know expanded but, but outwards. But still, for the sake of selling, I mean, they were. Yeah. I mean, as you were just saying, like in a post mercantile age, I mean, the the <laughs> we were a colony, like we were sent. People were sent here for the sake of making productions that would be sold. I mean, that's yeah. you're, you're, sent back home. Yeah, you got it. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's interesting. You know, I, I didn't really, I didn't think about that. Chesterton has that great line mm-hmm. um, the about the farmer. And he's like, the farmer, uh, first thing, he grows apples. And his first thought is, I'm going to use this to feed my family. But the modern farmer, the modern, whatever he calls him, agriculturalist, says, well, how can I make as many apples as possible in order to sell them all? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it's like the difference between subsistence farming and I guess today you call it corporate farming, although that's not exactly accurate. But this understanding of I'm in the farming business mm-hmm. as opposed to this is a way of life, right? And yeah. it's 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 in harmony and in tune with nature, not just exploiting nature. Because that's what you see. You get the whole one. I could go full Wendell Berry right now, but <laughs> I will I restrain yeah. myself. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's so great. So me and my buddies, uh, Keaton and Brian, we, we've been keeping track of everything. So when you uh, when the announcement came out that y'all got the certification, <laughs> right? Or the yeah, yeah, accreditation. Yeah. So what was that process like? We were, <laughs> we literally, as soon as it came out, my buddy Keaton's like, it happened. Because <laughs> yeah. they all, they're all like new quality guys and all that stuff. Oh, that's awesome. Well, well, you know what, man? It was so funny. We, we were, um, you, you know, we, we were thinking it was going to take 31 weeks because that's what, like, the you Ohio State code was going to – said it was going to take 31 weeks. And gotcha. so it did not take 31 weeks. It was, like, closer to two years. And and um, <laughs> and it was so – it was just, like, it was – in some ways it was extremely helpful because it makes you think about every situation, you know, that's going to happen in the next 45 years at your college, right? On the on the other hand, it was just like the most bureaucratic thing that I've ever done. I've been making the joke that we should all be <laughs> awarded honorary PhDs in bureaucracy. We're oh, having, having got through it. You should get um, a purple heart. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Wounded but, in battle. That's what that is. But we're really grateful. They're actually really wonderful people at the Ohio Department of Higher Education and um, very, very grateful for their support through, through this whole process. And um, it was so funny. I mean, I like to you know, some on occasion stay composed. And when Mike Sullivan, our president, walked in and said, it happened, dude. We we got it. We're certified. I totally jumped up and down like a little girl. And, <laughs> like I tried, I tried to jump in his arm and say, "He's like, I'm not catching you. What are you doing?" You know? <laughs> oh man, yeah. that's awesome. Is, why, why do you think it took so long? Do you know? Well, a, a couple of big reasons. One is that because you led with lower tuition costs, and that made everyone <laughs> everyone so very nervous. Well, it's a crazy model. It's just not yeah. done. No one's doing it. You know, yeah. you have the, a couple of great uh, Catholic trade schools now, yeah. but they don't have the college department or the college mm-hmm. segment to that. Uh, it's, a, it's a very very different model. Like there is nothing to compare it to. And so when um, when you're trying to run things through a bureaucratic code, and there, it's always based upon comparisons. What's been yeah. done in the past, and how does this slot into something that's comprehensible for our paperwork? It's like we couldn't do that. Also, just I, really, mm. you have 
you know, all of these public colleges that are yeah. knocking on the doors, calling for priority. And I understand that. I mean, these people were right. uh, overworked, understaffed, and legally forbidden to do overtime. So it's just not not a great situation for speed. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> not a good look. Not a good look. Yeah. 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 So yeah. I think that's that's what it did. But we, you know, it happened um, more or less concurrently with our approval to be an official uh, trades program, apprenticeship program. And so, um, you know, we're, we're up to our eyeballs and certifications now, man. It's awesome. Nice. Yeah. yeah, I had recorded an episode of Pints with Aquinas over the summer. Oh, yeah. And uh, I'm walking through the uh, where I parked to, over to Frad's building. And um, he uh, Thursday was telling me about this guy that hears about the school from his wife and he is one of the experts in timber construction dude yes and he was there for like what like eight weeks or something like that during the summer yeah it was a month yeah it, it was, was month, amazing yeah. yeah and i walk by and i i look over and he goes oh yeah that, there it is that's that's the college <laughs> of st joseph in the parking lot right there and i look over and there's this awesome all timber construction building coming together and then i hear gomer and I look over, it's my buddy Adam Rubazelli. And he's on top oh. of the thing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Me and Adam go way back. Yeah. Dude, that's awesome. Yeah. Adam is now working for us full time. Yeah. If I, that timber framing class is amazing. We're doing it again this summer. If anybody wants to come and join us for it, it was just an incredible time. We had about 50 people come through um, for all the classes and, and learn how the timber frame. And if you like want to know like how St. Joseph and Jesus were, were building, yeah. Timber frame, baby. That's just frame. how it was. Yeah. The cedars of Lebanon transformed <laughs> into your glorious home. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so this is this is the kind of the mode of everything is built out of out of timbers instead of the two by four sticks and all that stuff, right? Isn't yeah, that kind of the totally. You know, if you build I mean the history of building is actually so interesting because we yeah. go through this process of we're building permanently. You know, we're we're building something not just with us in mind, we're building for our children or grandchildren and you know the descendants that we don't really care about you know because it goes down so far this little yeah. thing is going to last for centuries and and just slowly over time we're trying to get um more efficient trying to get things up faster and faster mm-hmm. not caring about the next generation or really right. building for this sake of longevity and and there's a really interesting shift that happens kind of mid-century america where we start to realize that actually the main reason why we're building it's just like what we're talking about it's like i'm actually building for money not for people and so the very designs of buildings from the way that they're framed founded and structured all the way down to the interior design starts to have this massive shift and it's so interesting i think it's an amazing point of study to say what could we build like again and so we we're really excited to keep some of these traditional forms of building alive like timber framing like mass masonry uh your, your buddy adam just did this uh dry laid stone wall class which i just think is so bloody awesome i mean it's like you dry have dry no, laid stone wall you, class. no mortar you know and you could like run into this wall you could like have i mean they just last for centuries like they don't go anywhere there's no mortar it's just if you if you play your legos right baby this is going to be up, <laughs> up forever well that's how the irish built all of their walls in in ireland around their farms right that's, that's exactly it yeah. yeah yeah that's exactly what he said which study. is what comes from chesterton's fence his famous thing was he talking about you see a wall you see a stone there or a wall and you're like what's it there the modern man says rip it up i don't know why it's there and the other man says no you don't know why it's there so don't rip it up right <laughs> and that's what we're chesterton's fence has become used it is it is single-handedly pulling thousands of people out of the left 
today Whoa. out of the ultra progressive left i should say really? i hear it Whoa. oh yeah the intellectual dark web people like the um the weinstein brothers uh eric and uh oh gosh eric and i can't remember his brother's name okay whatever but mr. like mr weinstein yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah but they're all they're all using it because they're like yeah we and they were like new atheists right and they said we we didn't realize what we were doing we went way too far and turns out and i think a lot of this is jordan peterson's influence but it turns out that these stories these old stories survived because they were the most important ones and there's a lot of wisdom that we don't understand that we're getting rid of that we didn't realize we were getting rid of it and you look at this stuff and it's like you know the romans roman concrete is better than our concrete yep you know, and they finally figured out how it was so much better. One, they used salt water. Salt water. Yeah. yeah. Ocean and, water. Baby. And they used quick lie. Quick lie, which was the missing ingredient. So what Roman concrete does is quick lie forms in these clumps. And when concrete naturally, like when it breaks or whatever, and water gets into it, it hits the quick lie. And the quick lie will rapidly expand and then re-solidify. So it's self-healing concrete <laughs> self-healing the romans knew that's why their stuff still stands and are the average length of concrete in the u.s is like 70 years right crazy yep yeah, yeah that's why we always have to rebuild our stadiums yeah 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 or, they, you or, or as the romans would say our stadia yeah sorry that's yeah. such a lame joke oh my gosh i'm so sorry yeah, <laughs> yeah. well hey thank you so much for coming on and talking about it i mean we uh, i'm super excited about everything that you guys are doing um this school is awesome how can people support you learn more about the mission where do you want to send them yeah thank you so much i mean we're really grateful for for everybody's interest for for the, your prayers for your alms uh you can find everything on on collegeofstjoseph.com applications are open we're getting about 10 a day which is super exciting for us nice. and uh we're gonna just kind of blow blow up um and we're just hoping right now i'm trying to work to see if we can expand our opening class um right now we're slotted to uh to receive 30 that we have housing ready for them right now um it's going to be very competitive we're really excited to to welcome these guys this coming fall so so come apply uh join us would love awesome and and what trades are you going to offer i meant to ask you that earlier. yeah carpentry hvac electrical and plumbing this is starting is starting block and then uh, we do these other trainings and timber framing and mass masonry um and uh and, and we'll see if that list keeps expanding through this year but that's what nice, we can promise nice. right now gotcha yeah. if you ever open a satellite campus i can give you a house that desperately needs some help so uh <laughs> Right here. right here. Good luck, man. Hey, if you ever need to talk to somebody, hey, give us a call. We can... This is the worst. This is the worst. Uh, awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming God on the show. God bless you, man. Thank you. And I'll have all the links in the show notes to collegeofstjoseph.com where people can learn more. What was the phrase? Uh, the word became flesh and picked up a hammer. <laughs> I, was, I literally tweeted that before we interviewed. Started the interview. I was like, I love this quote. This is awesome. This is it right here. This is why I'm a woodworker. Yeah. <laughs> Slash is why I own woodworking tools and still haven't built anything. It's fine. It's fine. If you guys need donations of woodworking tools, let me know. Yeah, you, you got up. it. <laughs> All righty. Thank you so much. And uh, again, Jacob Imam, thank you for uh, coming on the show. College of St. Joseph, the worker. Worker.